This episode of Outlines contains mentions of sexual assaults and descriptions of crimes against children, which some people may find distressing, so, as always, discretion is advised. Welcome to the third part of my look into the murders in Beenham, Berkshire, which occurred between October 1966 and April 1967. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, make sure you go back and do so before starting on this one. It's a funny thing, but writing about Beenham has made me think about something that's never really occurred to me before. I spend a lot of research energy looking at times and dates and plotting out the history of a case in order to get put together a timeline of events, but what I've never really considered is the other timeline, that of the murderer. On the 7th of June 1967, committal proceedings began against David Burgess at Bradfield and Sonning Magistrates Court in Reading. Between this and his trial, which ran from the 13th to the 21st of July that same year, the time surrounding the murders of Jeanette Wigmore and Jacqueline Williams were laid out in detail for the courts. Burgess's story of what happened that day would change on multiple occasions, but everything around the killings, the time before and the time after, would remain the same. On the 8th of June, the same day as David pled not guilty, John Burgess, his older brother, took the stand. Between that occasion and during the July trial, he told the court that he was married and lived at Pineland's caravan site in nearby Aldermaston. He and David both worked at Fisher's gravel pit, the May Ridge site opposite Blake's pit where the girls' bodies were discovered. He told of how 19-year-old David still lived with their parents and two younger brothers, Philip and Gary, at a council house on the Stonyfields estate in Beenham. The day of the murder, the two of them had stayed behind late at work. On the 7th of June, Peter Barnes, prosecuting for the Director of Public Prosecutions, told the court, That afternoon, Burgess had been working with his elder brother John and with the other men on the other side of the road at Fisher's gravel pit. But by 5.25pm, the other workmen had left, leaving the accused and his brother John behind. John Burgess elaborated on this, claiming that We carried on till about 6.10pm when I left my brother to do my job, driving the mechanical shovel. I had to feed the hopper. David carried on emptying the bins. He took his last load up just after 6pm. He took it up to the entrance of the pit. Then he came back about 10 minutes after I saw him during that period up on the bank alongside the road, on our side of the bank. He was out of my sight for just under 10 minutes. David went along the bank for some rabbit wires. I know he went for them because I told him they were there. I had put them there. When I next saw him, he was coming down the ramp into the pit, driving the dumper. He parked the dumper outside the offices and went into the mess hut. John claimed that when he went into the mess hut around five minutes later, David was sitting at a table. 
He had a book in his hands, said nothing to him, and appeared to be perfectly calm. John added, When I got back to the mess hut after switching off and locking up, my brother appeared quite normal. I did not notice anything unusual. After I rejoined him, he did not, to my knowledge, change his clothes. By 6.45pm, the brothers were ready to leave work. John locked up and drove David back to their parents' home, staying for a few minutes before heading back to Pinelands. Peter Barnes summarised and elaborated upon the events which occurred between 5.30 and 6.30pm that evening, saying that David Burgess had parked his dumper up by the cottages on Admiral Lane and, after helping a driver complete a turn so that another car could get by, he made his way on foot along the lane in the direction of Bath Road. Barnes said... He remained out of sight of his brother and anyone else for the best part of 20 minutes and he did not get back to the pit until 6.25 or 6.30pm. Whether he was out of sight for 10 minutes, like John claimed, or 20, as was claimed by Peter Barnes, even David himself eventually admitted that during the period in which he was absent, the murders of Jeanette and Jacqueline were taking place at Blake's Pit. His story would shift and change over the months following his arrest as he embellished detail and went back on other parts, but through it all he would maintain his innocence, an innocence that his parents would believe in long after the trial had ended and... Perhaps, if the evidence of this trial was all there was, then there could be a small shadow of doubt now, an argument that he was a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You see, it does happen in cases today. Even the ones with what appears to be solid evidence can be challenged expertly, especially when someone continues to maintain their innocence and the right people get hold of their cause. Except that, in the case of David Burgess, scientific advances and later the discovery of key DNA evidence would eventually take away any doubt that not only was he the man who killed Jeanette Wigmore and Jacqueline Williams, but that he was also responsible for the murder of Yolandi Waddington. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines podcast. David Burgess was a Beenham man through and through. Although his mother, Margaret, was originally from Halifax in Yorkshire, his father Leslie's side of the family could be traced back through several generations of Beenham folks. 
Two of David's uncles had even worked for a building firm run by a man named Albert Blake, the owner of the gravel pit where the girls were found. David, who attended the village primary school until the age of 11, was reportedly not a bad child. His former teacher, May Giles, remembered, he was mischievous, but no naughtier than any of the others. I can remember other boys getting in trouble, but David was never involved. He was always very polite when I saw him. At the age of eight, he was reportedly involved in an incident with some friends of his who had been shooting an air rifle. They were attempting to hit a target attached to a tree when David ran across the line of fire. A pellet hit him straight in the eye and he was rushed to hospital where, despite the efforts of the surgeons, they had no choice but to remove it. From that point on, Burgess wore a glass eye. Despite this, he didn't let it affect his work and his progress in school was seen as average. At age 11, he moved from the village primary to a nearby secondary school. The school must have come as something as a shock to David, used to the confines of the tiny Beenham school, and his arrival at the secondary coincided with an overcrowding problem, which saw the school take in over 200 pupils too many that year. He remained academically average throughout his school years and, when he left, aged 15, he took a job at Park Farm in Webbs Lane. A boy named James Sharp was his only close friend and the two of them would ride into nearby Bradfield on Sharpie's scooter to visit the local pub or to go to the youth centre there. 18-year-old Mary Cullum, who had been part of the group of boys and girls who used to hang around the Bradfield area, told the papers that David wasn't an easy person to make friends with. He never had a steady girlfriend and, although she had gone out with him a few times, they never had anything serious. He was, she said, prone to arguing and would pick a fight about almost anything. Half the time, she claimed, he was just doing it to muck around. On one occasion, he even took her and some others to Fisher's gravel pit to show them where he worked and what he did. He apparently thought it was what she'd described as a cushy number. There was only one thing in David's life which he was really serious about, and that was poaching. He was reportedly a skilled rabbit catcher, and even told Mary that once the rabbit season began, she probably wouldn't be seeing much of him. This was David Burgess. His life up until the murders appears to have been a relatively normal one. He was from quite a large family and his parents had to work hard to support them all. But he was in employment. He had friends, albeit not many close ones, and he had hobbies and a social life. One story mentioned that as a child he liked to pull the wings off of moths, but that was unconfirmed. Mostly, people just described a boy or man no different to anyone else. On the evening of April the 17th, 1967, after John dropped him home from work, he wasn't there long before his friend James, or Sharpie as David referred to him, called around as he often did in the evenings. David told the court that the two of them watched some television together while he ate tea. 
They hung out at his home until around 8pm when they headed out, making their way through Beenham to the Six Bells pub. It was here that the two friends first heard that Jeanette had been found in the pit and that Jacqueline was still missing. Sharpie suggested that they go and help the search, but David said no. He didn't want to go, only changing his mind when closing time came around. When they eventually arrived at the pit that evening, they were sent away again. This would have been at roughly the same time as Jacqueline's body was being discovered, and by then, police had all the help they could need from the locals. The next day, the murders were the talk of the village, and John Burgess remembered inquiring lightly where David had been for the period of time in which he had been out of sight. John told the court that his brother had told him he had been right down the end of the bank and had never been across into the old gravel pit at all. John asked him if he was sure he hadn't been across the road and David, always quick to flare up, flew into a rage saying, What, do you think I'd done it? I told you I never went across there. I never had anything to do with it. John said, During that day, I asked where he was for the ten minutes. He didn't say anything. He lost his temper. I asked him if he had gone into the other pit, and that's when he lost his temper. I only asked him if he had gone across there. That's all. Despite the outburst, David's demeanour appeared to be much the same as usual. Although something must have been bothering John because... On a separate occasion, one evening that week, David's friend Sharpie remembered another conversation saying, I joined them in the car. Something was said by John to David to the effect of, you know, you could have done it. David flared up automatically and he said, it wasn't me. Two days after the murders, on April the 19th, David Burgess was interviewed at home by Detective Sergeant Jack Vevers of Exeter Regional Crime Squad, alongside Detective Constable Rogers. At this point, it doesn't seem as if he were a suspect. Only one of the many people who might have seen something that evening around the gravel pit area. Detective Sergeant Vevers told the court... He told me that he had been working opposite the disused gravel pit and had driven his dumper to a point about ten yards from Admore Lane. He then parked the dumper and wandered down the road towards Webb's Lane about twenty or thirty yards. I asked him why he had gone in this direction and he replied, I was just wandering about. He then said that he'd come back up the road onto the bank which adjoined the pit where he was employed. He walked along the bank and then cut into a small copse. I asked him what he was doing at this time. He told me he was checking rabbit snares. At this point, the detective asked him whether or not he owned a sharp, single-ended instrument, and Burgess headed upstairs, soon returning with a broken metal pocket knife. He said that he asked Burgess whether or not he had seen anyone with blood or mud-stained or wet clothing that day, and he replied no. There's something to be said for the idea that if David Burgess had just kept his mouth shut and stuck to his story, 
it would have been difficult for police to pursue a claim against him. Remember in the last episode, he was one of the men who talked to the press in the Six Bells, telling them that not only was he nearby when Jeanette and Jacqueline were murdered, but that he'd also had to speak to police following Yolandi's death because he claimed he had lost his knife a few weeks prior to that and was worried it might implicate him in her murder. The Reading Evening Post, who spoke to him in the Six Bells, even printed a photograph. And if you have looked up the case at all, you'll probably have seen it. If not, it will be on my Instagram for anyone who's interested. It's been reproduced various times by now in differing qualities, but in each you see a young man with slicked back hair. A strand is coming loose from its grooming and falling over his wide forehead. One side of his mouth appears upturned, as if he is starting to smirk or smile, but most arresting are his eyes. He looks intently at the camera's lens. The difference between his glass eye and the real one is starkly visible in the shades of black and white. On the 22nd of April, the Saturday after the murders, Detective Sergeant Joseph Shave was in Reading with another officer when the two of them saw Burgess coming out of a pub. Sergeant Shave told the court, he asked us if we were going back to Beenham and would we give him a lift. He had missed his bus. We agreed, but we went into a public house next door first. We stood in there and he started to discuss the events at Beenham. David told the officers that he was in a dodgy position, having been near the scene of both the murders of Jeanette and Jacqueline, and also Yolandi, having been drinking in the Six Bells the night she was killed. Sergeant Shave reportedly told him that he had nothing to worry about. David went on to tell the two men that he had been to see Jacqueline's father, because he had read an interview in a newspaper where Mr Williams had said that he thought the person responsible for the murder was a poacher. He said that Mr Williams told him that his daughter had been brought up to love animals and that he believed that there was some connection between the killing of animals and the person who had killed his daughter. The detectives with whom he was speaking were reportedly more than happy to give Chatty Burgess a lift back to Beenham and when they returned, the trio headed to the Six Bells, where David showed off a hunting knife he had bought in Reading that day. It's obvious that, by now, David Burgess had succeeded in drawing a fair amount of official attention his way, and it is no surprise that the following day he was interviewed again and asked to make a second statement. This time, he was spoken to by Detective Sergeant Peter Goldsworthy and Detective Constable Peter Maxwell. He gave a similar statement to his first, except that now he offered officers a little more information, telling them that he took the dumper out of the pit and drove it down Admiral Lane. He told them that he saw an Austin Cambridge parked outside a cottage along the private part of the road and that he was walking a little further down when he heard a car start up. Peeking through a gap in the hedge, he spied a brown hillman travelling towards Admore Lane. 
He told them that he was only there because he had been asked by John to go and see to some rabbit wires that had been set a few days earlier. He said, I knew Mr William's daughter. I had seen her around the garage and I might have known the other girl, but I didn't see them on Monday. At no time at work did I hear a scream. At no time apart from the one I have mentioned did I go into Blake's gravel pit on April 17th. I have not been there for some weeks. The detectives, obviously sensing that there was something missing from his story, asked David to hand over any items of clothing that he would have worn to work on the Monday, to which he replied, here we go again. The men accompanied him home and he went upstairs to fetch them returning with a pair of blue jeans, a camouflage jacket, and a pair of light brown tough boots. From the kitchen, his mother, Margaret, produced a shirt and a pair of socks. He told them this was everything, except his donkey jacket, adding, If you want that, you'd better come down the pit for it. The detectives did, of course, want the jacket, and so Detective Sergeant Goldsworthy drove David to the pit. Sergeant Goldsworthy recalled the drive there, saying that Burgess said to him, The trouble in this village is that everyone blames me and Jimmy if anything happens. We are waiting for you to catch this bloke so that we can have a bloody good laugh at him. Goldsworthy told him that he could see nothing to laugh at in this case. This man is sick and needs treatment. The real criminals are the people shielding him because they are gambling with other children's lives. David replied, Yeah, I suppose he must be a nutter. Do you think he could say he didn't know what he was doing and get away with it? Goldsworthy replied, I don't know enough about mental illness to answer that. That is a matter for the psychiatrist to sort out when we get him. Following this, referring to himself, Burgess cryptically told the sergeants that they would not get anything out of him because he would only tell the police what he wanted them to know. What David failed to realise, however, was that eventually it would not matter whether or not he told them everything because there is nothing more incriminating than physical evidence. And after his clothing and boots were examined, this is exactly what the police would have. On Sunday the 7th of May, David Burgess was again brought into the police station. But this time, there was no friendliness, no indication that he was just there to provide another statement. This was an interrogation. The man heading up the investigation, Detective Superintendent William Marchant of Scotland Yard, was present that day. And it was during this interview that, in a flourish, David Burgess's newly tested boots were produced. And so, in that moment, the police's trump card was played. Recounting the incident... Superintendent Marchant told the court that he'd asked Burgess to confirm that the boots were his, only to then inquire, how do you account for this blood on the side of your boot? David insisted he had no idea 
again stating that he'd not stepped foot in the pit that day, but the blood was a match for Jeanette Wigmore. Police were quite certain of that because her blood group was rare. So rare, in fact, that it was only found in 1.5% of the population. David Burgess's was not a match. There wasn't too much doubt that it belonged to Jeanette. Superintendent Marchant told Burgess, I can tell you that it's not your blood. It's the same blood as the girls on there. Burgess insisted again that he had no idea how it got there, but it was then that he burst into tears. And so began version three of his timeline of events. He told Superintendent Marchant, you catch the one I chased away. And when pressed, he elaborated, telling the officer that he was at the end of the pit where he worked, when he heard someone scream. He went across the road, and it was then that he saw her. He claimed that a bloke was standing there, and Jeanette was in the water. He told police that he shouted at the man, but was scared, and so he did no more to stop him. Marchant said, So you heard a scream? went down there, saw a man, and yet said nothing. David replied, I've seen no dead before. He elaborated further at this point, saying that the man ran away after he had shouted, and that David made his way into the pit, touching but not fully picking Jeanette up. Later, he'd embellished this simple version of events, telling the court... When I heard the scream, I was facing the road. It sounded as if it came from the other side of the road. I went to see what it was. First of all, I went up to an oak tree, turned to the left and went across the road. After getting through the bushes, I was looking down into the pit. First I saw a bloke. He was stood there. He was stood looking down. There was a young girl by his feet. I believe she was face down in some water. I shouted. It wasn't too much further into the interview that Burgess was charged with murder. As well as the blood found on his boot, and despite the fact that, for work clothes, the articles he'd provided to the police were surprisingly clean, the forensic team had also managed to detect traces of human blood on the back of the knee of his jeans as well as a semen stain on the front. Dr Brian Rees, who had examined the items, told the courts that he thought the semen had come from the outside of the jeans, although he couldn't be sure. By the time his trial opened in Gloucester, David Burgess's story had changed again. His latest statement, version four of the timeline, alleged that, unlike his previous claims, he did, in fact, know the identity of the man he'd seen standing over Jeanette's body. At least, he said, he knew the man's name. His new story stuck relatively faithfully to the thread of the old one, but he added that the man bending over the girl was known as Mac, claiming, I'm not sure what his surname is. It may be McNabb. I have met him in the Viking Cafe, Caversham Road, Reading and it should be possible to trace him there. 
He had, he said, seen Mac in the Viking on a number of occasions. He went on to say that Mac was about five foot ten in height and had long, dark, wavy hair. He said that he drove a brown Hillman car and that the reason why he had not come forward sooner was that at about 9.30pm on April 20th, 1967, I was in the lavatory at the Six Bells public house in Beenham when Mac came up to me and told me to keep my mouth shut if I knew what was good for me. He said, if I didn't keep my mouth shut, either me or members of my family would end up like them. To their credit, after he had made this new statement, police did attempt to find a man named Mac who might have frequented the Viking Cafe in Reading, but no one who worked at the cafe knew of someone with that name. And while at the Six Bells, two men named Mac were known to go in there, both had full alibis for the time of the murder. Although during his trial, there were points at which Burgess attempted to show compassion and sympathy, oftentimes his statements came across with a ring of untruth to them. He told the prosecutor, I know it is wrong, sir, and I know the bloke who done it should be strung up. But later, when talking about Mac and how he bo hadn't bothered to chase him, he was quoted as saying, I weren't fussy whether I caught him or not. And when pressed by the judge, he clarified, I would have liked to have seen him caught, but I didn't want anything to do with it. The judge continued to probe, asking again how it was that Burgess did nothing for Jeanette, nor tried to save her. Eventually, Burgess admitted that it had not occurred to him to do one single thing which might possibly have helped her. He said that he turned her over, getting blood between his fingers in the process and, assuming she was dead, he left her in place as she was. Backed up by a witness named Ronald Hutchins, who had gone to visit his mother at Lambden's Cottages, which stood by the entrance to Fisher's gravel pits, the prosecution managed to outline a compelling story for how the events that day might have occurred. Mr Hutchins said that he saw David's dumper driving out from the pit as he was reversing in at around 6pm that evening. The dumper, he said, turned into Admore Lane and parked as close by the hedge as was possible. Twenty minutes later, Mr Hutchins took the dog into the back garden. As he went to go outside, he noticed through the window that the dumper was still parked in its spot, but by the time he came back inside, seven to ten minutes later, it had gone. The prosecution believed that during this 25-minute window, Burgess, who had gone to check on the rabbit snares and had spied either one or both of the girls, playing in Blake's pit. Jacqueline had, in all probability, been attacked first, as more time had been taken over her death. She had been strangled, probably sexually assaulted, and then drowned. Jeanette's murder, on the other hand, was quick. As Professor Keith Simpson had testified, 
it could have been over in no more than ten seconds. The theory went that she had attempted to run away after witnessing the attack on her friend, and it was then that Burgess had murdered her too. Not bothering to conceal her body, as he had Jacqueline's, but instead dragging her a few yards from the grass to the pool where she was laid. After that, Burgess calmly made his way back to work, cleaned himself up in the mess hut, and... By the time his brother found him there, he was calm and settled, a book in his hands. It only took three hours and twenty minutes for the jury to find David Burgess guilty of murder. Before they were sent to consider their verdict, the judge directed a final statement their way, saying, I don't know what impression he made on you, but... Did he give any indication at any time of pity or of ordinary human emotions, distress or horror with what he had done, what he had found, what he had seen and what had happened to that village? Or did he give the impression that so long as he was not bothered, nothing else mattered? Despite his attempts to appear sympathetic, it was obvious that the impression Burgess had made upon the judge was not one of honesty, integrity and compassion. It's strange how covering a solved case has made me think about crimes like this in ways I never have before. It might be because I've covered so few cases which have a resolution but it's never occurred to me to consider the impact that the murderer's actions have on their own family. On the 4th of April 1968, Margaret Burgess, David's mum, gave an interview from the mobile home in Tadley where her family now lived. They'd tried, she said, to stay in Beenham, and while residents there swore that they had done nothing to force the Burgesses out of the area, Margaret claimed that the final straw was when her son Philip was refused service at the village shop. It wasn't everyone, she said, but a spiteful minority had forced them out. Whether or not the villagers of Beenham really were responsible for the family's move, what is certain is that for David Burgess's parents, life in the small village had become unbearable. We spent pounds on that house, laying tiles on the floor, redecorating, putting in new furniture, Margaret told the reporter. She spoke of how she had been raised in Yorkshire. Both her parents had died when she was 16, and she had been left with a nine-year-old sister. Aged 14, she had started working in the cotton mills, and following her parents' deaths, an aunt had taken custody of her sister and Margaret had slowly migrated south, settling in Beenham when she met Leslie Burgess. She said, I have had a hard life. It hasn't always been easy. I have always worked, but I have always been there to see the children off in the mornings, and I have been there when they came home at night. On the subject of David, she recalled... There was an old lady living in the village who was afraid of walking home down a dark lane at night, so David used to see her home. 
He had plenty of girlfriends. He enjoyed going for a drink at the Six Bells. Every Friday, he used to bring me a box of chocolates from the pub. I haven't had any chocolates brought me since. In the same interview, she talked about the man David claimed he'd seen in the pit the evening Jeanette and Jacqueline were murdered, saying, Oh God, I wish I could meet him. I'd like to see him. I just want one person who knows him to come forward. That would prove that there is such a person, that David was telling the truth. This is all I need. Both she and her husband spent years attempting to prove that their son was innocent. At one stage, they hired a private investigator. They wrote to home secretaries. They offered a reward for information on Mac and, up until at least 1974, they were collecting signatures to petition for his release. All was quiet after that, though and I can find little information about what happened to his parents. News on Burgess himself also dried up. Until 1996, that is, when David, who by that time was in HMP Layhill, a Category D open prison, walked out one day and didn't come back. He was on the run for two years, during which time he worked in Portsmouth and haven't, and was careful, he said, to avoid drinking too much, in case it got him into trouble. It would be two years before he was caught, and only then was he found because he'd reportedly panicked after seeing his picture on the TV show Crime Watch, and immediately tried to rob a bank while in the possession of an imitation firearm. Following his return to prison, all fell quiet again, until 2010, when the case of Yolandi Waddington, which had long since gone cold, was reopened by Thames Valley Police's Major Crimes Review Team. There had been talk, after Burgess had been convicted back in 1967, that he might also be charged with Yolandi's death, but there was never anything concrete to be found. In 1968, while in residence at Durham Prison, he'd been re-interviewed by detectives, but it apparently led nowhere. All this changed when items from the murder scene, which had been bundled about through various storage facilities over the years and even survived a flooding in 2001, were retested with a view to finding any new evidence. The items, including a polythene fertiliser sack, Yolandi's headband and her comb, all held traces of DNA. DNA which could be linked beyond a shadow of a doubt to David Burgess. On November the 15th, 2011, he was finally arrested for Yolandi's murder, though despite the fact that Back in the 60s, it was reported he'd confessed to the crime on no fewer than three occasions. In 2011, as with his earlier murders, he refused to admit guilt. You might be wondering what became of the blood testing done in the village back in 1966, and how it was that that hadn't indicated Burgess's involvement. In short, 
In the face of DNA evidence, it was all but dismissed. Perhaps, they said, at his 2012 trial, the samples just got mixed, or maybe he got someone else to give blood for him. It's an unsatisfyingly vague explanation, but in the end, it didn't much matter. The trial, however, was not a done thing. Police had to establish that there had been no cross-contamination between evidence in the three Beenham killings, and they also had to contend with the suggestion that another man might have been responsible for the murder. Burgess's lawyers made a valiant attempt at presenting Peter Jagger, Yolandi's employer with the wandering hands and eye for the au pairs, as a credible alternative suspect. In the end, it took the jury five days to come to a decision. Shortly after 4pm on the 20th of July 2012 at Reading Crown Court, their verdict was returned. David Burgess was found guilty of the murder of Yolandi Waddington by a jury majority of 11 to 1. Speaking outside the court that evening, Yolandi's brother Giles told the waiting press, Our mother and father were deprived of experiencing the hopes and aspirations of their only daughter's development. They have been robbed of their daughter's life events such as her wedding, her children and the comfort she would have given them in their later years. The recent reinvestigation and the trial have reawakened very painful and vivid memories of Yolandi's horrific death, which we have learnt to live with over time. For each of the people affected by the actions of David Burgess, including his own family, their lives were irrevocably changed by his actions. Actions which he never saw fit to claim as his own. Beenham, while never quite the same, moved on from the tragedies, but, as Giles Waddington said as he stood on the court steps in 2012, Yolandi's murder had a traumatic and irreversible effect on our family life and has cast a long shadow over nearly five decades. At the funeral of Jeanette Wigmore and Jacqueline Williams in June of 1967, a funeral which was attended by over 200 people, relatives and friends, the village reverend Cyril Kelway told the gathered crowd, Don't be overcome by the terrible evil thing that has happened, but by your words you speak and the lives you live. Try to overcome the evil. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Harding.